Genesis 41, verses 25 to, 30, or to 45 will be our text this morning. Pharaoh has just had a dream. Nobody could explain it to him. They are upset. The cupbearer who Joseph met in, um, in jail, who had forgotten him, suddenly remembers, oh yeah, I remember a guy who could interpret dreams. Go get him. Well, here, after they got Joseph, is the story. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain, scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance of Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh and to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, Can we find anyone like this man? One in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all, his, all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. <clears throat> he had him ride in a chariot as a second in command, and people shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word no one will lift a hand or foot in all Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphonath and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, to be his wife. <clears throat> and Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Dear friends of God, in his song, Dream Like Mine, <clears throat> I think it's coming, in a song, Dream Like Mine, Bruce Coburn sings, When you've got a dream like mine, nobody can take you down. When you've got a dream like mine, nobody can push you around. And it's true, the power of a dream 
When you have a dream, nothing can stand in your way. And when you have the power of God's dream, nothing can stop it. Joseph knew the power of God's dream. He received a a dream from God way back in his youth. And nothing, not his brother's jealousy, not his parents' criticism, not being kidnapped and sold into slavery, not being abused by Potiphar's wife, not being wrongly imprisoned, not being forgotten by the cupbearer he helped in prison, not being forgotten for a long time. Nothing would take away the power. Nothing would take down that dream that drove his life. He would rise. And when you have a dream like Joseph's, nobody can push you around no matter how strong they are. But it's not Joseph's dream, it's it's God's dream that he gave to Joseph. It's God's trustworthy promise. It's God's word. You will carry my blessing, Joseph. You will rise to the top, Joseph. You will rule over your brothers, not just so you can have fun and enjoyment from that, but you will rule over your brothers so that you will bring about a great salvation and save my people. The way Joseph rose to the top The way his dream was fulfilled was through another dream. Pharaoh's dream, which is also God's dream for Egypt. And the dreamer of two dreams is called upon to interpret the two dreams of another dreamer. Pharaoh's dreams troubled Pharaoh. Could we do the next one? Sorry, I didn't have a, yeah. In the morning, his mind was troubled. So he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. These dreams troubled Pharaoh. They they debilitated him. He, He couldn't figure this one out. He couldn't understand what they meant. They made no sense. Fat cows and skinny cows, good heads of grain and worthless heads of grain, bad ones swallowing up the good ones. What does that mean? And it, and it penetrated his head, it penetrated his heart, and he was stuck. And he was powerless. And the best wisdom of the empire was helpless to help him. Theologian Walter Brueggemann likens his dream to a thief that has come into the night. It's unexpected, it's unwanted, and it's robbed the king of his confidence, his control, and finally his future. This dream topples the wisdom and technique of the empire. It shows up the knowledge of Pharaoh, because knowledge is power. And in this situation, Pharaoh has no knowledge, and therefore is powerless. And the best and brightest in the empire are shown to be no better than buffoons in relation to the dream. That's the way God's word affects the empire, the powers. In Daniel 2, God gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream, and he was totally, totally lost because he didn't understand it. And none of the wisest in the empire could interpret it, except Daniel. And the scene brings to mind the powerlessness of the empire in Exodus 7 and 8, when dealing with a God who's intent on bringing his people out of Egypt. And once again, the best in the empire could not 
defeat this power, could not stop the future that God had determined. And it brings to mind the failure of the royal machinery in, in, of Ahab in 1 Kings 18. Couldn't stop a drought that Elijah had declared. Or the failure of Herod to stop the arrival of the Savior of the world in Bethlehem. There's an inversion of power here. The one accustomed to calling the shots is helpless and needs God's man to help him. With Pharaoh, the power of the empire is put into question and refuted by a dream. The dream presents the king with a new reality that he cannot domesticate. I can't control this. No wonder he's troubled. No wonder he's frantic to find out the intent of, his me of this message. No one can push this dream around. It has its way. God has penetrated the heart of the empire, and the empire is shocked, helpless, and frightened. When God speaks his word, it can be debilitating. It shows up the futility of knowledge without God and the emptiness of life without God. When God speaks his word to us and convicts us of his reality, the reality of our sins, the reality of, of the world, we're like those people in Jerusalem who, when they heard Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, were cut to the heart. They didn't know what to do. They were stuck. They were, they were troubled and perplexed. What does this mean? When God comes into our lives, it's not always sweet and light. It sometimes causes uproar. It knocks us off kilter for a while. Everything, you know, we thought we had everything all set. And then God calls. And he tells us he's come. I've come to proclaim good news to the poor. I've come to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to give, and to, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Your secular life gets rattled to the core. God's dream is that we serve others, that we share, that we seek justice. And Jesus stands on a hill and says, all authority is given to me. Nobody can push that dream around. Not even the most powerful economic system or ideology or empire. God's dream shows up. And it rattles us. The cupbearer introduces Joseph to Pharaoh. It's a testament to the open-mindedness of perhaps, perhaps the desperation of Pharaoh that he resorts to so despised a person as Joseph. Because there's Joseph. He's a slave. He's a prisoner. He's a Hebrew. He's a youth to boot. Joseph, however, is cleaned up, has his beard shaved off, and set in front of the king. And Joseph is, is an amazing person. Imagine if you were called up and you got a phone call. Hi, we need you to meet with the prime minister today. Imagine, you know, you. What, what, would you, what would you do? You're, and imagine you're the, the, the lowest rung on the social ladder, and you've been in prison for the past few years. That's Joseph, a slave, probably still blinking from all the bright lights outside his prison, 
And there he was in front of the leader of the most powerful nation in the world, seated on the throne. And there were the guards and the gold and the symbols of power. How would Joseph not be intimidated by this? How could he not feel like a fish out of water? What am I doing here? What is going on? This inversion. Who am I trying to kid? But Joseph has a dream. And no one will take it down. It gives him the presence of mind to stand with confidence before Pharaoh. And when Pharaoh asks Joseph to interpret his dream, he proclaims, it's not me, Pharaoh, it's the God I serve who gives me this this interpretation. Because he's the one who gave the dream, and therefore he's the one who interprets the dream. And he never backs down from telling telling things the way they are. He's a straight shooter. It's my God who gives this to me. This is what my God reveals to me. And, you know, Joseph has grown so much since his days of bragging to his brother, ha, I got a dream, ha. No, he's now confident to stand as God's man in front of power. More confident in God than in himself. And Joseph's not going to be intimidated into giving a flattering interpretation. He's a man with dignity who knows that God will bless him no matter what happens, so let's just tell the truth. And his interpretation is as troubling as the dream himself. There will be seven years of good and seven years of bad. We can't understand the true meaning of that that dream until we realize how central the Nile River was to the power of the pharaohs of Egypt. The Nile was the source of fertility. The Nile was life. Between July and November, the Nile would burst its banks and cover the land. It would just inundate the whole land with, with water. If you were living on, living on that land, you had to discover ways of dealing with floods all the time. Then, because the Nile would burst its bank and cover the land. And then when the water receded sometime around September or October... those waters left behind a rich alluvial deposit of exceptionally fertile black silt all over the croplands. And Pharaoh's priests in their temples had these these monitors of the river. They were called Nile, well, they they call them now Nileometers, meters that measure the Nile. And um, they measured when the floods would peak, and like this one near Cairo, and you see the little side on the right there, that's where the water would flow in and then fill up this, this inner chamber and, and just have you know, the measurements of how high the river was. And it would, sometimes the whole facility would be submerged and the temple with it. And as the water subsided, the stone temple would reappear from the depths like a rebirth as such a, you know, the power of their religion. And, and this whole rebirth would take place and the priests would signal to Pharaoh, it's time. And then Pharaoh would proclaim when it was safe to plant the crops. Pharaoh's word was the word of life, guaranteeing f- food and flourishing. But if pa- Pharaoh didn't have that power, if the, if the river didn't flow the way it's supposed to, if the Nile failed to re- produce its bounty, there would be trouble. The failure of the Nile and its life system 
means that the empire does not have in itself the power of life. And it means that Pharaoh is not a god, a provider of all that is necessary for life and health and happiness. And the dream came in and knocked Pharaoh off guard, unannounced, and stripped him of the charade of power. It's like the Wizard of Oz. He's just another man who has no real power. And there is Joseph pulling the curtain open. The river that Pharaoh supposedly controlled would now become a source of death. And Joseph points out that it is God who will be the final arbiter of the future. It's not technology or wisdom or cunning or religious mystery or the might of Pharaoh that would come to their aid and guarantee the future. The royal way is to think that the future is derived by careful planning and calculation. But in his quiet, confident speech, Joseph puts an end to that notion. God has given you these two dreams, Pharaoh, because he fully intends to do this action. Seven years of good, seven years of bad. And Joseph confronts Pharaoh with the very premise of much biblical faith. God has the capacity to work in any situation and disrupt the best plans of humankind to work his sovereign will. It's the same message of Easter, where God broke into time and space and disrupted the plans of the evil one and worked his royal will, bringing us salvation. And Joseph gives it to Pharaoh straight. And thankfully, he listened. When you have a dream like Pharaoh's, nothing can push it around. Not even Pharaoh's natural reflex of seeking to control things because it's God's dream, not Pharaoh's dream. And Joseph saw clearly what God was about to do. Had God merely intended to say, you know, seven good years followed by seven bad years, there you go. The dream would only have shown seven good cows and seven good years followed by the bad ones. But now Joseph interprets the swallowing up of the former by the latter. That part of the dream which horrified Pharaoh the most. Joseph sees in this swallowing up of of the cows, a swallowing up of, of the grains of corn, the exhortation to take emergency measures to enable Egypt to swallow up the surplus of the abundance during the famine. And it called for a discerning and wise person. And Joseph standing there, you can just imagine him standing there and going, Pharaoh, this calls for a discerning and wise person. Well, he, you know, he might not have done the thumb thing, but it would be good to have a good a, a person of such measure administering this program. And the wisdom of the Egyptian wise men is not enough. And it's striking how God's plans do not allow for human beings to do nothing. You know, it's, it's, it's not that God's going to do this and, hey, let's just stand around and do nothing. No, there's planning there's, there's firm purpose of God requiring firm royal action. God's purpose is not the end of human planning, but the ground of human planning. And even though God's ways are higher than our ways, he still wants us to take actions that are responsive and faithful. God's dream took hold in the courts of Pharaoh. Joseph is immediately elevated to that elite group of rulers who hold the power, and he becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man is second in command. People, when they see Joseph, they say, make way, somebody important is coming. And he's given a wife, the daughter of a priest, and given a new name. Joseph's dream has come true. 
Joseph has risen. Joseph is now the second in command of the world's biggest superpower of the, day, of the time. And in the next chapters, you'll see it come into full fruition as he meets his brothers. And Joseph worked hard with integrity. He, he efficiently stored up the produce of the land in the fruitful years. Imagine the vision that he must have had to keep that up. When everyone is rolling in the riches of the land, Joseph comes, I'll take 20%, please. Imagine doing that in year six. Imagine doing that in year seven. Haven't you got enough? You're taxing us to death. Try doing that, something like that today. Could you uh, play, put the next slide up? Oh, no, it's okay. Go back. And in that role, he's like Jesus, tenaciously administering a plan of salvation. He knew what he was about. He didn't confuse it with anything else. He turned his face to his work and made it possible for us to be saved from the spiritual drought of life without God. And in the end, it is Jesus to whom every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth. And this week, we remember that it was 60 years ago that Reverend Martin Luther King marched on Washington and gave his I Have a Dream speech. When he began his speech, he wasn't going to say these words. But Mahalia Jackson called out from behind him, Martin, tell them about your dream. So Dr. King departed from his script and uttered those famous words that excited the world. I have a dream. Can we do the next one? A little bit out of order today. Yeah, I have a dream. He spoke of his dream of freedom and equality arising from the land of slavery and hatred. He spoke of a dream of his four children not being judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. His dream included vicious racists replaced by black boys and black girls joining hands with white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. And he ended his section, this section of his speech with an image from Isaiah 40. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. And 60 years later, the scourge of racism is still strong as witnessed by the Black Lives Matter movement and the pain and the, the awful things that are taking place. But the dream is still alive. Racial justice will come. Racial justice will have the last say. It will flow like a river. Here's the picture for the kids. What dream <clears throat> is guiding us today? What dream, what word from God has gotten under our skin and moved us so that we can do no other? What dream of human thriving compels our church? What dream would give you poise and dignity even if you were kidnapped and sold into slavery, abused and unjustly imprisoned? What dream would hold you no matter what? Jesus once asked his disciples who they thought he was. And Peter stated it clearly. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. To which Jesus responded with a blessing, saying, I will build my church on that confession. 
and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There is the dream that will never, ever die. The church that is built on the confession, Christ is the son of the living God. Christ is the promised one, the anointed one. And the Bible follows up on, on that when it says in Philippians, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the dream. The dream that gave Stephen the strength of uh, strength as he faced his martyrdom as they threw those stones at him. He says, look, I see Jesus seated on the throne. This is the vision that held the early Christians fast as they faced persecution, as they had to live in the catacombs underground. This is the dream that will not be stopped by empires. And it's the same dream as that compelled Dr. King. It's the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. Everyone will see Jesus exalted, making everything new. That's the dream that compels the church. Will this dream be pushed around? Will it be taken down? Never. It's from God. It will keep strong, and it will accomplish its purpose. We keep on following that vision of God's future for us. We live by its values. We work, uh, work it. No matter, on, work, and it, we allow it to work on us and how we live and do our work and how we think and how we educate our children. We follow a sovereign God who calls us to acts of service and good works as we seek to live out his dream in this world. In all we do in an alienated, lonely, fractured world, there is so much to do to show the glory of the Lord. Joseph has come a long way in this chapter. He's gone from the depths to the heights. The killers of the dream at Shechem had not killed it. They will see, like we see today, God's dream is unstoppable. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, Thank you for this story of how your dream is fulfilled. Thank you that we can see how your dream will not be stopped and nothing will, will stand in its way. Lord, as we follow Jesus, as we see him seated on the throne, as we see him with all authority in heaven and on earth, we thank you that the gates of hell will not prevail against his kingdom, against his church. We thank you that we can have confidence and we, we will not be afraid because we have that dream with us and it will not be stopped. Bless us and help us to live into it, into that great dream of yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.